You are listening to the Visualising War and Peace podcast. In each episode, we look at how people have experienced, described or imagined armed conflict in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which representations of war and peace can have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig and I direct the Visualising War and Peace project at the University of St Andrews. I have two guests on the podcast today, both based at the US Army War College and both researching AI-enabled military technologies. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Paul Lyshenko is the Director of Special Operations and a faculty instructor in the US Army War College's Department of Military Strategy, Planning and Operations. Paul has combined an academic career in international relations and diplomacy with regular military deployments, directing intelligence operations at the battalion, combined task force and joint task force levels. In his most recent operational assignment, he served as the Senior Intelligence Officer for the Joint Special Operations Task Force in Afghanistan and was also responsible for shaping the coalition's strategy to defeat the Islamic State and helping to regionalise US counterterrorism policy and strategy. Paul is a Council on Foreign Relations team member, adjunct research lecturer at Charles Sturt University and non-resident senior fellow at Cornell University's Tech Policy Institute. He's the co-editor of Drones and Global Order, Implications of Remote Warfare for International Society, published in 2022, which studies the implications of drone warfare on global politics. He also has a book forthcoming with colleague Shyam Rahman on the public's perceptions of legitimate drone strikes, entitled The Legitimacy of Drone Warfare, Evaluating Public Perceptions, which will be published by Routledge in 2024. Dr. Geraldine Packer is an award-winning educator specializing in the U.S. military school system. Twelve years ago, she transitioned into educational leadership, which enables her to engage in reflective practices and collaborative coaching with district and school leaders in the Department of Defense Education Activity. Skilled in strategic planning, professional learning and data analysis, she partners with senior leaders to identify educational gaps and craft targeted solutions to improve achievement. Dr. Packer is currently a resident student at the U.S. Army War College, where she's taking part in the Defense Senior Leader Development Program. She's currently running a research project which uses interviews and focus groups among senior officers to determine what shapes their trust in AI-enabled military technologies. And going forward, she hopes to employ this research in an upcoming role within the Senior Executive Service, so her findings are going to have broad policy impact. Paul and Geraldine have come on the podcast today to help us grapple with some recent technological developments in warfare, which have huge implications for how governments, militaries and the public visualise conflict and indeed peacekeeping now and in the future. Indeed, as Paul's edited volume from 2022 underlines, drone warfare and AI require us to rethink the structural and normative pillars of global order. So this kind of visualising is hugely important. Paul and Gerilyn, many thanks for making time to talk to me today about this very big topic and welcome to the Visualizing War and Peace podcast. Thanks for having us, Alice. Happy to be here. Great. So I'd like to begin, if I may, with some broad questions about the evolution of military technologies in the last couple of decades and their impact not only on how warfare is done, but also how it's understood and planned and pictured or imagined. So, Paul, I wonder if you could get us going by just giving us a really potted history of the emergence of drone warfare. Again, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be here with you, Alice, with Gerilyn, and then all your listeners around the globe. So this is a big topic, and I, I think it's interesting, too, that there's so much access to information on drones these days that anybody and everybody is an expert to include my father who has no understanding of what a drone is, uh, probably never seen one, but yet he's got such access 
uh, to this information. And so it's really important that we define what the capability is, what it isn't, and what it means for global security or not uh, going forward. So where did drones come from? Well, this concept of extending operational reach for lethal fires delivered by an aerial asset in this case, or just persistence that this capability provides has has been around for a century or more, right? So it goes actually back to the Civil War period where we see Confederate and Union soldiers in the United States, at least, using the capability to provide overwatch of an adversarial formation. And over time, what we learn through the emergence of the aircraft is we can actually couple that capability uh, with a weapon or array of weapons. And so we actually get the emergence of drones in the modern form around World War One and World War II when we're attempting to use the capability, um, the United States that is, vis-a-vis Germany and the Axis powers. We start to uh, mature the capability in Vietnam during the Cold War. And really, it was around the Yom Kippur War in 1973, where the Arab coalition of Syria and Egypt invaded Israel, that you get uh, the sort of really modern armed and network drone that was cross-pollinated from Israel to the United States. Now, of course, the most well-known drone that we have in the U.S. arsenal, uh, at least, is the MQ-9 Reaper uh, that's manufactured by General Atomics in California. And General Atomics was a small sort of mom-and-pop manufacturing plant of aircraft in the 1980s and 1990s that actually bought up Israeli technology at the time, the so-called Gantt uh, drone uh, was the precursor to the uh, the Predator and the Reaper, uh, and the rest is history after 9-11, where the Bush administration chooses to really weaponize uh, this capability to conduct targeted killing of terrorists uh, across the world. And so, in sum, the history surrounding drones actually predates 9-11, the terrorist attacks against the Pentagon and elsewhere in the United States. But this was a serious inflection point for military innovation, where we saw technology providing a couple chief benefits that were beneficial to the United States and our allies and partners. So those consist of things such as extending your operational reach to apply effects in a precise manner, at least hypothetically, while buying the risk down to your own forces as well as civilians. And this is important by way of international humanitarian law. In fact, the chief requirement for so-called who's in bellow is to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. And so the drone provides solutions for all of these considerations politically uh, and militarily. Thanks very much, Paul. And we might come back to that Slight question mark that you raised over precision in a minute, but in your edited volume on drone warfare, you have written about the proliferation of drones, the dronification almost of of warfare. And I wonder if you could just help us picture just how dominant or important drone warfare is now relative to other kinds of war fighting. So it might help if you can sketch what role it's played in Ukraine, for example, relative to other military operations. And do some militaries invest in or rely on it more than others? be really helpful just to build that picture a little bit. Yeah, this is a really important conversation that cuts across different fields of international studies and research there of to include also the political economy of drones. So probably the easiest way to understand this is to think about why these capabilities 
proliferate in the first place. If we can establish this, then how have different countries and non-state actors used the capability and across the range of capability to include the very capable armed and network drones like the Predator and Reaper to the less capable but still very lethal capability in the TB2 Barakatar manufactured by Turkey to the commercially available, easily weaponized drones that are being used to such effectiveness by Ukraine and other countries to include also non-state actors. And so how do drones proliferate? How should we understand this question? Well, in my research, there's really three core impetuses for drones or mechanisms that would drive the proliferation of drones globally. The first is the sort of security implications that countries and leaders therein believe they can benefit from. And so again, the chief benefits, at least hypothetically, of these capabilities is that you would extend your reach, buy down risk to friendly forces and civilians as well. The second sort of driver of proliferation is the political economy of drones. In other words, they cross borders and there are different beliefs about what this provides countries. And the chief benefits from a political economy perspective is that you would gain increased access and influence in markets and in countries that you may otherwise not have access in. And so an example here could be China. So when China emerged in the drone marketplace around 2010, you saw a precipitous increase in the amount of drones that were sold globally. And again, this predated Turkey's emergence as a drone manufacturer that's gone above and beyond that. And the primary drivers here is profit and to gain influence across different regions of the world, whether it's Africa or whether it's there near abroad. So Turkey, for instance, is selling drones across to the Middle East, Central Asia, and down to Africa, and China's doing the same. The final more normative consideration for drone proliferation is this notion of approbation or status, that we need the capability to signal to other states or other non-state actors that we belong in a certain club, the veritable drone club. And so this is very important for especially smaller states and even middle powers like Australia, stalwart ally of the United States and the antipodes, that you would have the capability that reflects rightful membership and potentially, and more importantly, rightful conduct in an era of shifting character of war. And we also see the same dynamic among non-state actors to include especially Hamas. Now, I'd like to pick apart this question of Hamas's drone program later on in this discussion, but suffice it to say here, the best evidence we have informs us that Hamas gains this capability and relatively on its own accord, I might add, notwithstanding that Iran has sponsored a lot of its activities for several decades, but it gains this capability to signal to the Palestinian diaspora that it belongs as a vanguard for their pursuit of statehood, battling, as it were, a much more capable military in Israel and indeed Western powers. And so you see here three primary drivers of proliferation, security implications, we have an economic implication, and we have a status implication. And often these things, although I presented them in a discrete manner, come together to drive proliferation overall. So if we've established that, then what are the sort of intended benefits that drive countries' uses of the capability? And it seems to me that there are two primary ways that countries use the capability, and we can unpack this going forward as well. On the one hand, the capability is viewed as another tactic. 
simply akin to an AK-47, an M-16, a tank, something uh, that would be used in the heat of battle uh, for a discrete and tactical military objective, the destruction of the enemy capability, the killing of an enemy combatant. This is the tactical use of a drone. The strategic use of a drone is much more comprehensive and deliberate. And I think some leaders, especially within the United States, have viewed it as a proxy for a veritable strategy, which we understand here at the U.S. Army War College is about synchronizing ends, ways, and means. And so viewed from those lenses, the end state is increased national security, defense of the homeland by playing the away game. We've heard from senior military leaders this week in our own curriculum that the best defense is a strong offense. And so the over-the-horizon component uh, here is pretty important. The central ways and means become simply a missile and the use of drone warfare abroad in concert with our allies and partners who provide critical infrastructure to land, to refuel, to retrofit the capability. And this is the strategic use of drones. And so going forward, what I found is that it's very important to benchmark, especially casual observers of the capability, that there are different patterns of drone use that we often can see in terms of the tactical versus strategic use of drones. Okay, really very, very interesting there. That's a very detailed, very clear picture that you've just given us of this proliferation in multiple directions, obviously ranges of different drones, ranges of different uses as well. Just to round out our picture of drone technologies a bit further, can you give us a sense of how autonomous or semi-autonomous or indeed people reliant, the more dominant drone systems tend to be? Absolutely. And so this is a really important question because for the most part, we only have semi-autonomous drones within our inventory, not just within the United States, but within our key allies and partners, military as well, and indeed for non-state actors as well. And what that really means, and this breaches into a conversation about artificial intelligence and the way that the artificial intelligence can enhance uh, capability, is that the human is still uh, in or on the loop. Right, which is to say that the human has the ability to identify a target, to make a decision through a command and control process, exercising human agency and achieving what international jurists call dignity, which comes down to the ability for humans to wrestle with the moral, normative, you know, ethical, legal implications of these capabilities, right? And so even if you take a look at the most advanced drone in the world, the MQ-9 Reaper, this thing is at most a semi-autonomous drone. In other words, it can fly potentially on its own through GPS waypoints that have been pre-programmed. But when it comes to applying lethal effects for any tactical task, whether it's destruction, disruption, or defeat, which is important against terrorist organizations for U.S. perspective, the decision to launch ammunition still resides with the commander. This is really different, of course, as you know and written about, from the fully autonomous, so-called lethal autonomous weapon systems or laws. And I think that there's been a conflation between the way that senior military officials especially think that warfare is progressing towards, which is the use of AI in the battlefield across domain and at scale, versus the way that it actually is in practice at this point. I mean, we are, in my humble estimate, I'd be curious to hear what Geraldine, the real expert here, thinks about this. I, I think we are decades away from getting toward you know, the ability to use a law in combat. It's not to say that militaries aren't studying this capability, but the devil is really in the detail 
in terms of weaponizing algorithms to shorten the sensor to shooter timeline, uh, which means we apply effects more rapidly than an adversary. So in sum, we still are wedded very much so to semi-autonomous drones that exercise human agency over targeting, especially. There is a belief in movement afoot to move towards uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems. And assuming we can ever get there, which I think is probably likely, the DOD policy or Department of Defense policy, which actually is codified in Directive 3000.09, states that the United States, this is policy at least, will never actually outsource the ability to target and make targeting decisions to, to an algorithm. Really, really interesting. That's helped clear things up on the drone side at present with that question mark over how near or far lethal autonomous weapon systems are from us at present. But that gets me turning to Geraldine. Your research looks specifically at AI-enabled military technologies. And I wonder if you can get us going by just helping get to grips with what exactly falls into that category. I'm sure. So I think Paul did a really good job of describing the drones, the unmanned aerial vehicles. Now, those can be used for you know surveillance, they can be used for targeting or for striking, which is under what we just talked about with the laws, the lethal autonomous weapons systems. But the broader category of that, those drones fit under a category that's called autonomous weapons systems. And what that is, is drones is a type of system that once activated, they can engage targets with or without further human intervention. And so really where that line that Paul was um, discussing, where that line falls is, where does that human intervention lie? Can the machine be more in control or is the human more in control? But that's one type of AI-enabled military technology. Okay. And in what way does AI then complement or enhance traditional military technologies? Paul's already indicated that there are limitations. It's a long way off in some senses. Can you flesh out a little bit more what the limitations of AI currently are? So AI can complement military technology in many ways. I think the three primary ways that it will complement is through one, efficiency and speed. Because artificial intelligence has the ability to process and analyze vast amounts of data at a far faster pace than humans can, which means that in the moment, humans are able to make faster decisions and have faster response times, which when you think about the context of military operations, that time is crucial. So that's one of the major assets that AI gives to technology. Another way that it complements military technology is through precision and accuracy. Depending on the quality of the algorithm, because I think one very important point here is that artificial intelligence is only as reliable as the data that it's based on. But depending on the AI algorithms, especially in things like targeting or intelligence systems, if those algorithms are high quality, they can truly enhance the precision in both of those areas, targeting or intelligence, which could lead to reduced collateral damage because they can actively identify targets and they can also calculate optimal attack vectors in that sense. Mm -hmm. Another way that AI complements military technology is through the use of autonomous operations. Now, I know that we've said many times here, we may be a long way off from laws, but AI does enable the use of other unmanned systems like drones 
or like autonomous vehicles that can be used for surveillance or logistics, or even in some situations, some combat missions that would reduce the risk to human soldiers. So there are many opportunities for us to take advantage of the benefits of artificial intelligence, but it really does come with some limitations. And I know Paul has outlined some, but I'll give a couple other limitations. One is the lack of intuition and judgment. AI, again, it's based on data. It's not an actual human. AI lacks that human intuition and also the moral judgment that we as humans have. And when you think about combat situations, a lot of times those can be complex and they can be ethically ambiguous. That's a limitation that is held by the artificial intelligence. Another limitation that we have to consider is the ethical concerns. When we're looking at, particularly in these hybrid systems, if we use AI in either autonomous or hybrid situations, it really raises significant ethical questions, especially concerning accountability for decisions that are made by the AI system. If things don't go as planned, who's responsible? Is it the human operator or is it the machine? Is it the developer of the machine? So these are some some ethical questions that raise concerns, I think, in the public opinion as well. In order for a policy to be passed to make some of these AI technologies possible or use of it possible in the military context, that public perception is going to be very important. So the ethical and legal concerns of AI really will have a limiting factor on the use of it. Absolutely. We know that there is a lot of public concern and policymaker concern as well over AI in general in our world. But when you are factoring in those, as you say, those ethical concerns, the questions, huge legal, humanitarian, ethical questions around accountability, then in some ways we're a long way off the use of AI enabled military technologies, not because the technology isn't there, but because, as you say, there's a lot to process and a lot to go through. So, Geraldine, your research looks very much at this human technology interface, and you're interested in one particular challenge of integrating AI into military operations, and that's the issue of trust, how much or how little military personnel and indeed strategists trust AI technology. I want to hear a bit more about that in a minute, but I wonder if you can first give us some concrete examples of AI systems that will help us picture the intersection between AI and military decision making. So just to help us understand how much input the intelligence from AI might have in different contexts relative to human decision making. So let's go back to our drone since we've we've talked a lot about the use of these unmanned aerial vehicles or or drones. Um, So in the military context, these you know, can be used for reconnaissance or intelligence gathering, surveillance, or targeted strikes. And the AI processes the images. It processes imagery and it censors data to identify targets or points of interest. But then humans, the actual officer or soldier who's using this technology, they have to make decisions regarding what am I going to do with this information? And so that's where that level of trust comes in. To what extent am I trusting the reliability of the information that I'm receiving? And again, as we look at that spectrum of how much control are we willing to give to the machine to make these decisions, 
trust is an essential factor in that. It would be really interesting to hear a little bit more about your initial findings on this big question of what levels of trust military officers have in AI military technologies and and perhaps even more interestingly, where their areas of mistrust are. So that's a really great question. And, you know, as you're aware, this is a it's an emerging field. So the empirical research is very limited, you know, but thanks to people like Paul, who is um, really taking on this topic and adding to the body of knowledge, there are some trends that are emerging. And I'm going to let him elaborate on his theory in just a bit, but I'll just kind of give you a, a brief rundown of, I'm using research that Dr. Lashenko published just this year around the way trust is built with military officers in regards to artificial intelligence. And he developed this theory that identifies the decision level, whether the decision is made at a strategic or a tactical level, that that might influence the way officers trust the artificial intelligence. But then also that center of control, who's driving the ship? Is it the human or is it the machine? And to what extent? And so he's really done a lot of research on how these levers influence how much military officers trust the artificial intelligence. I'm taking his framework and using partially my education background, as well as some additional research that I'm gathering. And I'm looking at some moderating variables within that context, really looking at how does the AI literacy within that context affect how much officers trust the artificial intelligence, as well as the level of risk involved in the decision and the past accuracy of the AI technology that's being employed. So really looking at several variables and getting to the heart of what moves the needle for our military officers as they are partnering with technology to make decisions. Yeah, so I think this is a really very important topic that my research agenda is growing into. And as an educator here at the War College, I'm inspired every day to come to class because the complimentary effects that the sort of qualitative research that Gerilyn's doing in her project, coupled with the quantitative, real empirical research, is going to make both of our work powerful. And in terms of a methodological point to make, this really shows the value of a mixed method research design to get leverage over a very multidimensional and complex topic, which is trust. And trust, as we've defined it in this research, comes down to expectations of reliable performance for capability and algorithm, in this case, over time, based upon shared goals. I mean, this is the textbook definition that technologists will take a look at in terms of AI technology. And so I think we have to take a step back and say, okay, so what are the key research questions that are driving both Gerilyn and me in this direction? On the one hand, there's a very tactical but very important consideration of the factors that go into technology, how the technology is used that shapes military attitudes of trust, and as Gerilyn stated, will increase the propensity, the faith in partnership, this concept of so-called human-machine teaming. The other question, which we both dialogue with, is to what extent really is AI changing the trajectory of future warfare? 
everybody agrees and there's broad consensus among sort of popular scholars like Paul Shari at the Center of New American Security, as well as my supervisor at Cornell University, Professor Sarah Kreps, that there was going to be indelible changes to warfare based upon this capability. But we don't really know what that looks like. And so the question that we both confront is, how should we understand different patterns of warfare that are emerging based upon AI? Let me start with the former question that builds on Geraldine's uh, before diving into the latter. So what shapes shoulder trust in AI? I've adopted an original survey experiment. It's called a conjoint design, which is to say that we can vary a lot of different factors and determine which factors, one varied in combination, really shapes overall attitudes. And so I've identified from the rich literature on drone warfare and public attitudes for drone strikes, to include some of my own research on legitimacy, nine different factors that I believe and hypothesize will shape soldiers, service members' attitudes of trust for these capabilities. Things like the amount of autonomy, manual versus full, things like the precision or accuracy, less versus more, things like the effectiveness, how many civilian casualties can we anticipate versus how many soldiers do we save when using the capability, and then the sort of legal oversight, whether it's domestically levied through Congress or whether there's an international organization or regime that provides oversight. And, and oh, by the way, because we've talked about the political economy, what other countries are using the capability, especially adversaries, right? So I will vary these nine factors and determine what shapes trust. And what I find from my initial findings is a really tightly calibrated set of instrumental and normative considerations that shape soldiers' propensity to partner with these capability. And so what I find uh, when surveying officers at the U.S. Army War College and U.S. Naval War College in Newport, which is not a representative sample of the military by any stretch, but a very rare, convenient sample that gives us some understanding of attitudes at the senior level. And oh, by the way, probably a hard test uh, because it, the more mature age growing up, not as millennials for the most part, we may be primed to distrust the capability, right? And so I think this is a really good test for this theory. And what I find, again, is a tightly calibrated set of considerations for trust. So first is technical specifications to include the autonomy, the precision, really shape trust for service members. And what this means is they don't want a fully autonomous capability. They want what we call a mixed initiative capability that we can toggle the algorithm both on and off. And of course, they want high precision, which means our false positive rate is less. I also find that the perceived effectiveness of the capability is very important. In fact, it's the most important shaping factor of them all. And here, I think that war ethicists and people who study this closely from a normative perspective ought to be heartened because what I find is that the most important consideration is collateral damage. Officers at this level want to reduce civilian casualties to the highest degree. But on the other hand, they also want to protect friendly forces. And so what you get is an integration of competing moral logics that people like Nina Dill at Oxford and others have identified in terms of drone use generally. And then finally, and really interesting, is that officers at this level will trust capability more when there's international oversight. 
It's not to say they don't appreciate congressional approval and legislation for these capability and policies within the United States, but what they really want is some international standard of conduct, a norm that would govern our use and give us some comfort that other countries that are developing the capability are going to use it in kind, which I think dialogues with the recent conversation that President Xi and President Biden had recently in San Francisco over these AI technologies. And so again, I find that trust in these systems, and this is all sort of initial findings, is based upon sort of moral and instrumental considerations that we have drawn from the drone warfare uh, literature. Just want to piggyback on that because Paul and I have talked a lot about his research, which is truly fascinating to me because the entire world is grappling with artificial intelligence right now. You know, it's not just in the military context, but it's in the private sector, it's in the education sector, in the economic sector. We're doing a global grappling at this moment. And his research is so robust and it's so insightful. But the educator in me yep. can't help but ask why. Yes, I see these correlations. I see mm -hmm. that, you know, these are the factors that are, you know, influencing the truck. But why? I really want to know how are they thinking about the artificial intelligence? How are they thinking about the decisions? What thought processes are they going through as they are preparing to partner with this technology to make the decisions? That's why I decided on a qualitative methodology for my study. And I'm doing interviews and focus groups. So building on this foundation that Paul has set, I'm going to look more in depth at the why. So I'm going to talk to members of the U.S. Army War College. And this population is so valuable because the officers who attend the Army War College are really situated between that tactical operational leadership and strategic leadership. And I think that that's going to really give some insightful evidence into the how the different decisions are made or how trust varies when making those different level decisions in military operations. And again, from the educator's standpoint, I really believe that this research is going to provide valuable insight into how officers think about AI, but may also highlight some gaps in AI literacy or in thinking patterns that might have been useful or might be useful in certain types of warfare, but might need adjustments. You know, as we're looking at, as Paul said, um, the future trajectory of warfare. And I believe that this research project, I'll be able to, will be able to help inform military training programs mm -hmm. by highlighting those areas where officers feel less confident in AI, maybe looking at some targeted training modules to build capacity and efficacy, or looking at different simulation-based training that integrates the AI, familiarizing officers with using AI in controlled environments that may increase their trust and comfort with the technologies. But I really think that there are several educational implications to the research, as well as the broader discussion of AI and military operations. You may be aware that just a few weeks ago, President Biden signed an executive order on the safe and trustworthy development of AI. And then Vice President Harris, just a couple of weeks ago, announced new U.S. initiatives to advance the safe and responsible use of AI. By conducting these different types of studies, really looking at where the trust is strong or where it's fragile, 
I believe that this type of research can help to guide some of the policymakers and the technology developers in addressing some of those concerns and really setting some realistic operational parameters for the AI use um, and ensuring the ethical deployment of AI in military contexts. Mm -hmm. So the picture that you're building at the moment is not only of technologies and international law norms that are under development, but educational support training that needs to keep up with that as well. And from what you and Paul have been saying with the Paul's findings on the um, areas of mistrust or trust being around a mix of instrumental and moral considerations, then training needs to look very holistically, not at AI simply as a technology, but AI as a place where you do thrash out those ethical questions, those moral norms. And Geraldine, I'd be really interested to know whether in your findings with the qualitative research that you've been doing in your interviews, whether you feel that issues of trust reside not only in a sense, the military background of your interviewers, but in that kind of wider lived experience of being in a world where we're growing up with technology as it develops. To what extent do you think these issues of trust are very specific to the military careers of the people that you've been talking to and the military context in which they operate? And to what extent are some of those issues of trust kind of being fed by their broader life experiences? Yes, absolutely. And I'm still in the very beginning stages of my research. I actually conduct my first focus group on Monday of next week. However, just some of the anecdotal evidence that I've gathered so far I think that what you said is is spot on. It's not just the military context that is affecting officers' trust in artificial intelligence. The lived experience, I believe, actually may weigh more. You know, I'll be curious to see what the research shows, but I believe that the lived experience, the background knowledge, where people are situated generationally, the previous experiences with AI, you know, either successful or unsuccessful. I really think that those are the deeper factors mm -hmm. that are driving that trust. Yeah, absolutely. And and just thinking a bit more about that slippage, that bridge, I suppose, between military experiences and uh, um, wider lived experiences. In a minute, I'll, I'll drill in a bit more about public trust in AI, uh, not just military trust in AI, but Paul, it would be really interesting to turn that question to you, um, specifically in relation to drones. So you've got an edited volume coming out very soon that examines public perceptions of drones, specifically how the public views their legitimacy and how that might in turn then affect different countries' policies, their use, their investment, uh, how it might influence global governance of drone warfare. Um, and uh, uh, as I understand it, public debate around drone warfare has revolved around several issues. We've we've seen the rhetoric of precision strikes, which has made drone warfare sound more targeted and less destructive than actually it sometimes is in reality. So we've also seen people starting to question that rhetoric. There's the emergence of drone swarms, which has led to debates about killer robots with the spectre of lethal autonomous weapon systems really terrifying people. And then the relative lack of risk in launching a drone from a distance at a desk compared with its often devastating impact on the ground has obviously generated a lot of debate about the ethics of drone warfare, as you've already touched on. So I wonder if you can um, say a little bit about the different ways in which drone warfare is widely visualized today outside military communities. So on the drone piece, 
You know, in my research, I have attempted to problematize the so-called moral norms that underwrite intuitions for legitimate versus non-legitimate, as perceived by observers, drone strikes. And, and what I've found in a recent policy piece is that there's really three leading moral norms that govern intuitions for these strikes in terms of legitimacy. One is deontological consideration, which is to say duty of care to the civilians. And this is drawn in large measure from some of the really unique cutting end research that Yadina Dill is doing at Oxford University. The other sort of moral norm flips that on its head and talks about the consequentialist or outcomes-based measures for legitimacy. And this is the notion that Bradley Strauser has talked about in his work of the obligation to actually use these capability, the principle of unnecessary risk, that because we have the capability, we ought to use it to protect our forces especially. And then finally is this notion of martial virtues that govern the sort of idealized image that we have of warfare. And this comes down to things such as battlefield heroism, courage, putting yourself at a liability to be harmed is the central benchmark for legitimate operations. And of course, this is the argument from people like Neil Rennick, uh, my colleague in Copenhagen, who came out with a book called Asymmetric Killing, that although militaries want asymmetry on the battlefield to put adversary forces at a disadvantage, drones actually transition into morally problematic killing because you're removing the unalienable right to self-defense. You're not giving anybody any notice of a strike. And oh, by the way, the risk reciprocity between those targeting and those targeting targeted is virtually non-existent, right? And so this is morally problematic. In my research using survey experimentation, both the United States and France, I find that the moral intuitions that govern legitimacy outcomes are a lot more complicated than simply one versus the other. And that when you vary the use and constraint of drones, again, as a tactic or strategy on the one hand, or governed by nothing more than a state's own prerogative or with oversight from the United Nations or regional bodies as well, when you vary use and constraint in these ways, you get interesting outcomes for the way that moral norms shape attitudes and perceptions of legitimacy. And as the one prime example of my own research, this is the case of US drone strikes abroad or French drone strikes in Mali. Now, of course, France has withdrawn um, from the Shahal this last year or so. But when I was doing my empirical research, it was the only other country besides the United States, great power at that, that was using drones beyond the immediate borders and regions, which meant that it was also another useful sort of comparative case study. And what I find is very clearly both countries and citizens um, within these countries prefer unique patterns of drone warfare. The United States uh, citizenry prefers the notion of over the horizon drone strikes, that we can use it as a strategy with limited to no oversight from the International Society of States. This is what we term over the horizon drone strikes, whereas the French ascribe very clearly to this notion of a French model of drone strikes that uses the capability as a tactic with multilateral oversight provided by not only the United Nations and security resolutions, but also from regional bodies such as the African Union. And so I can show very clearly that legitimacy outcomes are shaped by the way that countries use and the way that they constrain these drone strikes. It gets a little bit more complicated in terms of underlying values and beliefs or so-called micro foundations that we can pull out uh, through this experimental approach. But what I find consistently across both countries, and ironically so in, in the case of the United States, 
is that both countries and citizens within these countries, they prefer international law as a way to benchmark legitimacy, which is quite ironic uh, if you think about it from the U.S. perspective, because for the most part, U.S. drone strikes in over-horizon capacity are actually breaching other countries' sovereignty or territorial integrity, which you know flies in the face of the chief norm of international relations, uh, international law. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I see this as an important mediating effect. The other thing that's really important as well here is the implications for civilian casualties. So what I find is that notwithstanding the civilian casualties, in other words, if there is or there isn't a civilian casualty, French citizens, again, as the only other country that uses this capability beyond its immediate borders and regions, will prefer the sort of tactical use of drones with multilateral oversight. Civilian casualties um, as a thing are just bad, and it doesn't have any bearing on whether or not they'll ship their preference for a certain model of drone strike. Whereas U.S. citizens have this sort of ex post facto reasoning where they prefer to do drone strikes how they want, where they want, with what effects they want to achieve, unless or until there is a civilian casualty, at which point they would want a more constrained model of drone strike with international governance. And what that tells me is that U.S. citizens generally want their cake and to eat it too, that we want freedom of maneuver to conduct actions as a global hegemon, but only until the actions go awry or we're affected ourselves. And then the final point I would make here is that one of the things I do in my research, which is driving forward the conversation on drone warfare, is I actually adopt legitimacy as a dependent variable. For the most part, in public opinion research, we take a look at attitudes of support and approval, and we make this assumption it's often implicit that this is the best benchmark for attitudes that we have in this context. And yet, we know that public officials and military leaders often talk in terms of legitimacy and rightful conduct. And this is General Milley's point after the strike in Kabul in August 2021, where we actually killed 10 women and children versus the one ISIS fighter that we thought we were killing. And we perceive this as righteous. And this is the quote. It was righteous, right? So if we talk in terms of legitimacy, is really important for the sustainability of operations globally. And we train our students at the War College to include Gerilyn on the importance of legitimacy as a joint warfighting principle. We ought to unpack it and understand really what shapes it. And so using legitimacy as a dependent variable is quite novel. It's not with without problems that I contend with in the book that's forthcoming, uh, but that's the way I think we should think about uh, intuitions um, and how they're shaped based upon the sort of use and constraint of these capabilities. And you're drawing a really fascinating picture for us there, Paul, where public trust and public investment in and a sense of legitimacy of drone warfare sits somewhere on at different points on the spectrum, quite a big spectrum between personal understandings, I suppose, collectively built as well, socially understood moral norms about reduction of casualties and proportionality, and then the more legal framework of international law. The So somewhere between these instinctive natural laws and uh, frameworks of international law. But these issues of trust hover along that spectrum, which is a really fascinating thing to keep thinking about. That it's important to understand that this finding from my research is consistent with other moral psychologists and philosophers about the way that people integrate different moral logics when 
they are forming their judgments. And this is basically intuitions, right? So-called fast and, and slow thinking that we would think in terms of instrumental considerations, but also moral considerations. And so what I find is, is really consistent with the body of research for the use of military force, generally speaking. The other point to understand is that we often think about drone warfare as a function of the platform, the Reaper, the Predator, the Barakatar, the Chinese DJI. We think about drone warfare as targeted killing only. We think about drone warfare in the context of irregular warfare, which is to say counterterrorism or counterinsurgency. What we do in the book, which is an original contribution, is to say, no, drone warfare is the variation of use and constraint, these key empirically observable attributes that right above the type of warfare or the sort of mission that you're conducting. And when you think about it that way, you can actually see how there's emerging patterns of drone warfare that differ drastically from the United States's, right? So we've already talked about the French model, but there are other emerging models that are used by countries like Ethiopia. Ethiopia uses drones against political opponents to stamp out political violence and dissent. That's a wholly different model than how the United States conducts these operations or the French. And so we have to be a little bit more sophisticated when we talk about what drone warfare is in our minor contribution or big contributions to say, think about it in terms of the way that political officials and military leaders want to use the capability and how they constrain it. And when you do that, you can see very clearly the emergence of different models of drone warfare globally. Yeah, that's a very important point there. And I think you're also helping us get to grips with the fact that there is a lot of continuity of questions of trust, of mistrust between drone warfare and other forms of warfighting for all that there is also, there are very specific areas of mistrust that are related quite precisely to these novelty and the unknown quantity of some of these emerging technologies. Geraldine, if I can bring you back in, how do the trends that Paul's been talking about compare with what you know about public perceptions, not military perceptions or, of or trust in AI military technologies? How do you think that the perception of AI enabled technologies differs between military contexts and civilian settings? First of all, I, I do agree with what Paul was saying. And I, I think that public perceptions of AI and military technologies, I think that they vary. And they're shaped by several factors. And I think that the media plays a big part in shaping that public perception, but not just the media, but also um, ethical considerations. And just, I think the public's general knowledge about AI um, shapes some of those perceptions. But it's important that we understand these perceptions and how they're built because I think that public perception can significantly influence policy and funding as we're looking at partnering with these technologies in our modern warfare. I think that the public generally has some concerns about AI. Um, again, thinking about the media, if you think about popular culture um, and the media, I think that historically we've kind of depicted AI in a dystopian light, um, which has influenced the way we think about it. And, and I mm -hmm. say the collective we. Um, you think about movies that you know about that's used AI um, or literature that you've read that features AI. It's usually featured as some kind of uncontrollable force, um, you know, that's, and, and that contributes to a sense of caution, you know, that the public has or, or a, a kind of fear that we might have about how, how powerful might this technology become. I mean, think about the Matrix, 
think about, you know, these movies that we've watched, you know, over the past decades. I think that the public also has some some unease about the use of fully autonomous weapon systems. Just that idea of a machine making a life or death decision without a human intervention, I think that that gives the public pause. And that's something, you know, for us to consider. Or I think other perceptions that the public may have is that AI systems may not be secure always. You know, they can malfunction. They may be misused, whether intentionally through malice or accidentally. So I think that there may be some apprehension about the systems being hacked or them making incorrect decisions based on flawed data. Um, And honestly, I don't think that there's a big difference between the AI perception among military personnel and civilian settings. Um, Because, you know, if you think about it, the military is just a microcosm of, of the larger society. It's still made up of people. I do think, though, that there's a couple of of aspects where the perceptions might diverge a bit. One being that in the military, AI might be viewed a bit more through the lens of utility and efficiency, really thinking about the strategic advantages of using it, whereas civilians are more influenced by the ethical or the privacy or the safety concerns. So I think that the, the lens is a bit different between the two populations. And I think, too, that In the military setting, that trust in AI might be developed more through direct experience and through training, you know, in a particular context, whereas in the public, that trust is more influenced by, you know, that secondhand information, the media, you know, and our our own cultural narratives. Can I jump in there? Because I want to footstomp just the incredible answer that Gerilyn just gave you. She's absolutely correct, right? And so now, having studied the question of public attitudes of trust uh, recently and published on this, but also being here and studying military attitudes, I'm seeing a lot of consistency in the empirical research. So on the one hand, we ran a study at a Cornell University about public attitudes for AI across domain. Again, driverless vehicles, police surveillance, all that. And what we found was four principal mediators for trust to include the fear of missing out, the calculation that you could always opt out of capability, not use it anymore, the efficiencies that Geraldine talked about, and then furthermore, optimism that this was going in a way that was for the public good. When you set that against military attitudes in a recent survey that I just ran, again, experimental, what I'm finding is that the fear of missing out in the context of the military is more akin to an arms race that may be emerging that puts the United States at a disadvantage if we don't equally pursue this as our adversaries are or at least we can believe they are, right? And then furthermore is education. The more education that our officers have, even at this level, so people like Gerald with the doctorate, the more questions we have that would reduce the amount of support and trust we have. And that's the final point is that there is a real paradox in attitudes of support and trust that I am seeing among both citizens as well as soldiers, that they would support the uptake of a capability, but not trust it. Mm -hmm. And so in the military context, what that leads me to believe is that the narrative that our senior leaders have about the future trajectory of warfare is being inculcated, whether it's conscious or subconsciously, by our officers. And we're 
going to support the uptake of capability at different tactical, operational, strategic levels, but we actually may not trust it. And I see the same consideration among citizens who potentially are even less well-versed in these capabilities than military officers at the level we study. And so Gerilyn's absolutely correct that we are a microcosm of the United States. And because of that, my intuition empirically, the theoretical expectation I have is that we're going to see consistency and attitudes of trust and support, even the differences between the two. Mm -hmm. A really fascinating observation there that you might support the implementation and the development without fully trusting it. And that has huge implications for how we visualize future war and for how we visualize the levels of control we might have over future warfare. And that brings me on to another question for you, Paul. Geraldine made a really important point just now that lots of stories in the media and in popular culture have represented AI and other technologies as well in very dystopian ways and have taught us to mistrust and to fear a little bit. But your 2022 edited volume, Paul, does actually put some flesh on the bones of why we might be very, very wary of the world order, the global order implications of drone warfare, the kinds of impacts that drone warfare is already having on global order. And I wonder if you can just talk us through that a little bit now. What aspects of global order are particularly challenged by the proliferation of drone warfare? So the question about global order is really an important one. And to the extent we make a contribution in the book, which I think we do, is we, we take the conversation on drone warfare from one about proliferation, one about effectiveness, and one about the normative implications, all of which are important and are contestable in their own right. But we say, okay, we ought to think about the implications for drones on global order, assuming that there isn't such thing as a global order, because, you know, we can't view it ontologically. It's, we can't feel it, we can't see it, but yet we talk about global order as if it's consequential. Indeed, we're increasing capability for Ukraine from the United States because Russia is undermining the liberal international order. And so the starting point for this discussion is what the heck is order? And we draw upon a very rich literature for the so-called English school of international relations theory, which is posited on this possibility of international society of states that share sort of common values, norms, and institutions to define order as a pattern of intersubjectively shared norms and institutions that allow countries to overcome the sort of precursors to conflict. So enmity, suspicion, misunderstanding, and that by doing so, we can achieve common ground for security, prosperity, and most importantly, peace. And so when you understand order in this way, we can define clear pillars of order that builds on the work of Andrew Phillips out at University of Queensland in Australia, who's really a leading theorist on order from an English school perspective. And so we define order as a function of four different axes or pillars to include a central organizing principle, an intended outcome, institutional framing, and finally, the distribution of capabilities. And when you link this typology to what we know to be the case structurally and normatively within the global order, what we find is that hierarchy, the hierarchical structure of international society is really the central organizing principle that sovereign, sovereignty or uh, sovereign equality of states, territorial integrity is a sort of intended outcome or purpose of good that Phillips talks about. And that international law and the diffusion of capabilities is what we mean when we talk about institutional framing 
and the distribution of these capabilities globally. And from that, we can see that it's not all bad for, for drones. Drones actually have sort of complementary and contradictory effects on these pillars of order, both within the pillar itself, but also across pillars. And so take sovereignty for um, interest. Um, for the most part, and I think for good reason by way of international humanitarian law, international law, generally speaking, critics of drone warfare prosecuted by the United States, this over-the-horizon model, will say that it undermines the chief norm of international society, which is sovereignty. And in undeclared theater of operations like those in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen, I think there really is legal footing to make this argument that drones would undermine sovereignty and therefore global order because we're transgressing that sort of territorial integrity of a state to make its own decisions in prosecuting threats on their behalf or just based upon our own prerogatives. But on the other hand, if you take a look at drone warfare in terms of sovereignty or the intended outcome of global order, uh, international society, we can see that it does quite well in places like Ukraine, where it's not just the Turkish TB2 bear Qatar that Ukraine is using to prosecute Russian uh, artillery, their own logistical trains, but also it's the army of drones, the 50,000 plus commercially available, easily weaponized, retrofitted capability that now has leveled the playing field for Ukraine in the context of this war against another state. And so what we do in the book is really tear apart the pillars of global order to include, again, hierarchy, to include sovereignty, to include international law and the distribution of capability to suss out some of the complementary and contradictory effects of drones at this global level. And what we ultimately come to is a place of realizing that our mainstream theories, the materials theories such as realism, whether it's classical, whether it's neo, whether it's structural, or even the sort of liberal ilk in liberal institutionalism are really inadequate to, to explain the complexity of the implications of drones globally. And so we advocate for further study through things such as critical theory, gendered understanding of international relations, queer sort of theories of international relations to understand the unique implications of drones that go above and beyond the sort of mainstream effects we would anticipate by adopting a realist or liberalist lens. And then finally, that while drones can be used for coercion and even deterrence to a degree uh, that threatens to undermine global order, in certain instances like Ukraine, drones can actually strengthen global order. Really interesting. Again, um, this is such a fascinating conversation. There are so many rich areas to dive into. Paul, you just mentioned more research, the need for more research in some very particular areas to look at the unique implications of drones. So you mentioned, for example, their gendered use. And that actually gets me thinking about a couple of chapters in your book that look specifically at how colonial and racist drone warfare can be. And I wonder if you can expand on that. Yeah, we've gone to some great places today. And this is why the literature is, you know, it's oversubscribed in some cases. Everybody's a drone warfare expert. But on the other hand, there's all these interesting threads to pull that have real, as Geraldine stated, policy implications. So what about this racialization notion of drones? So I have an, an article under review right now with a scholar from India and, and one at the Naval War College. And we confront the question of the degree to which public opinion, public support for U.S. counterterrorism drone strikes 
are racialized or are underwritten by sort of racial bias. And in studying this in an empirical way, what we do is take a look at proxies for the social construction of race. I mean, race is uh, often viewed as an identity, but we know that it's based upon larger power differentials that socially construct the other, right? And so in adopting more of a heuristic understanding of race, that there are limitations there because we can't dialogue necessarily with the foreign policy that could be racialized that lead to these strikes. But when we're taking a look at the actual strike itself, we vary the skin color of a target as well as the location, because people like Wilcox will tell us that we can make bodies from places, right? That that location becomes a proxy for race. And what we find really fascinating, Alice, and quite contrary to what we initially anticipated, was that race in terms of skin color and location doesn't really have a bearing on public attitudes of support. That when you actually provide more information on the racial composition, the brown black skin of a target, and for the most part, we are killing brown, black, and indigenous people with these capabilities, that when you provide more information on skin color, and that when you provide more information on the location, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in Latin America or Africa, you actually get less support for the capability in the strike. But when you don't provide these things and you dehumanize the target through what we call an infrared picture optic that strips the target of any identifiable skin tone or color and then don't provide information on the location, you actually increase support. And I, I think this is a really important finding because when you take a look at public opinion polls for drones, for the last 20 years or so, we get high public opinion among citizens for these strikes. But the questions are like this. Do you support the use of a drone strike abroad against a terrorist? And so what we're assuming is that this person's a terrorist to begin with, and we're providing absolutely no amplifying detail on the target. In other words, we're dehumanizing the target. What we find is that when you provide more information on the target, when you humanize the target, when you provide implications for skin color and location, you start to generate more questions about the merits of these operations. And what what that means in terms of the policy implications is that drones have have really circumvented public accountability and democratic oversight in the United States, at least. And we ought to be more forthright about the intelligence and the merit of an operation uh, before we conduct it, um, unless we're in a position where people support it unknowing of, of the actual implications. And so the racial question here is something that needs to be unpacked further because there are a lot of limitations with our study. And I'm happy to report that people like Zoltan Buzas at Notre Dame, uh, Chris Blair at Princeton, Josh Schwartz at Carnegie Mellon are going to join me and my colleagues at a panel at the International Studies Association here in San Francisco next April to talk about these very sensitive but very important questions that go across different munitions, not just drones, but also nuclear weapons as well. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, clearly hugely important work being done and and needing to be done in this space, as you say, drilling down into some of the unexpected dimensions of the relationship between public investment in drone warfare and development of drone warfare going forward. Geraldine, coming back to you, I wonder if you see AI military-enabled technologies as more likely to disrupt rather than to reinforce global order. That's a great question. I think that Paul brought up so many important points that must be considered. And I don't know that, I believe that 
it will disrupt the global order, but I believe that it may spark some necessary conversations. I believe that in looking at the world in the way that that Paul just described and humanizing um, these concepts, I just wonder if it may lead to us having some of those difficult conversations in other ways as well, truly getting at the heart of that global order that affects other aspects than just military. And, and of course, coming from my position in the education system, I'm really thinking about, you know, the way that we approach those same concepts in the education setting as well. Yeah. And are you aware, Geraldine, of any research that's looking at the potential of AI for peacekeeping or peace building? I've not dove deeply into that yet. However, I did see that the United Nations has assembled a group of high-level officials to come together to create some international norms around the use of artificial intelligence, which shows that there is a global commitment at this time to using artificial intelligence for peacekeeping efforts. That ties into some of the issues that both of you have touched on the in relation to trust and in relation to the development of drone technology and AI military enabled technologies more generally. The need for more regulation, the public desire for more regulation, for more international oversight. And then if that is embedded in wider conversations about global order and indeed peacekeeping and, and future peace. We've dived into so many interesting topics and each of them deserve a a much lengthier discussion on their own. But I want to end by asking you both a question, a much broader question now about our habits of visualising war. So Paul's research has drawn attention to some of the ways in which drone warfare has challenged traditional habits of visualising war. As he noted earlier, drone warfare sometimes sits in tension with these so-called martial values. It has been called post-heroic or riskless warfare because at least from the the drone operator's perspective, it's less kinetic than more traditional warfighting and sometimes, although not always, desk-based. As you've also noted, the asymmetry of drone warfare, where one operator can cause extensive damage to many people, has also been problematized in lots of ways. And interestingly, it's begun to be used by storytellers to re-visualize past conflicts. So, for example, one of our previous podcast guests, the theatre maker Ewan Downey, has described the impact of the mythical hero Achilles on the Trojan battlefield as like a drone strike or as unfair as a drone strike because of his capacity to wound and kill without incurring huge risk himself. So in other words, it's not just that drone warfare is helping us revisualize future conflict, but actually getting us to look back and use it as a different lens for rethinking historic conflict too. So I'd be really interested to hear how both of you think these new military technologies will change how we visualize warfare, not only from a tactical or a strategic point of view, but from a broader cultural storytelling perspective. So Paul, Starting with you, how might new military technologies impact discourses of human agency, leadership, gender, vulnerability, and maybe even the fog or the clarity of war? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think that we're seeing here is a connection of the past with the present. In other words, going back to the future to adopt different imaginations that were used by the Greeks, for instance, in mythology 
to explain things that are quite new, novel, scary, unsettling for people to think about. So what does that look like in terms of the research that Jaron and I are tackling from different sort of methodological traditions? And so she mentioned earlier this theory that I built that attempts to allow us to understand the future trajectory of warfare based upon variation in the tactical or strategic decision-making that we outsource to artificial intelligence on the battlefield versus the sort of human or machine control. And what I'm seeing is that there's actually an intersection with Greek mythology to explain how we think these capabilities are going to operate on the battlefield. And so this notion of centaurian warfare, where you would have the body of a man or a woman on top of the legs or the torso of a horse. This is the so-called tactical decision-making of AI with human oversight. Or on the other hand, minotaur warfare, which is another Greek creature from ancient mythology that attempts to explain quite the opposite, which is to say an animal's uh, sort of head and torso over that of a human body. And so what we see here is the adoption of rather arcane or older ways of understanding um, and visualizing the world templated on top of modern day and cutting edge technology to attempt to explain these patterns of warfare that may transpire based upon the adoption of these novel capabilities. That's what I'm seeing as it relates to AI in the battlefield. And actually, I'll be honest with you, it, it's a little bit different from what I've understood or thought about in terms of drone warfare. I think the Achilles example you bring up is, is really fascinating, but I find the way of visualizing AI on the battlefield through Greek mythology to be very helpful in understanding the way this could go. Fascinating, particularly to me as a classicist who this morning was teaching about the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens, which uses centaurs and lapiths to model and memorialize a historic conflict between the Greeks and some others. And the centaurs are others in that narrative. They are not Greek. They're not human. They are they're the barbarian type. They're the savage. They're the other. So it's really interesting that there might be this kind of twist in centaur mythology and where in fact that becomes more of a norm rather than an exception but we're still in the process of navigating between that exceptional nature to that kind of more normal sense of future conflict. Geraldine, do you think you can imagine war or indeed peace storytelling in the future that revolves around AI as the main agent or even the main hero? You know, Alice, I have to tell you, I was an English teacher for several years, and this question has my heart so happy <laughs> um, right now. I'm just thinking about all of the different ways that AI can be the protagonist in the story. But I do think beyond just that, when we think about drone warfare and what seems to be a riskless undertaking, I think that it can lead to narratives that portray a detachment from the traditional heroics of warfare. And so that storytelling might focus on the psychological impact on the operators who engage in that combat remotely and how they grapple with the consequences of their actions from a distance. I think that stories may also evolve to, to highlight the potential pitfalls of an over-reliance on technology in warfare, being overly confident in tech solutions underestimating the enemy or the technological malfunctions that illustrate the need for that human-machine partnership. I think that just like drone warfare creates an asymmetry, I think that it could foster stories of resistance 
against um, technologically superior foes. I think that those types of narratives might just emphasize the, the character traits such as like ingenuity, mm-hmm. just being innovative and creative in the, those moments or using guerrilla tactics or cyber warfare to counteract technological dominance. I think that we can definitely shift that dystopian narrative that we've created around AI and look at AI as being the protagonist. It can be the savior of the story, a critical tool that we use that either prevents conflicts or minimizes casualties because of the amount of precision that it brings to the table or the advanced decision-making. I think we can let AI be the protagonist. It can be portrayed, you know, as an agent who upholds those ethical standards in warfare. I can see us watching an AI technology refusing to execute an order because it views it as unethical based on either international laws or or moral codes. So I, I really do think that as we increase this partnership and as we really begin to develop a bit more trust in the partnership between you know humans and artificial intelligence, I think that we can really see some shifts in our cultural portrayal. Yeah, so we are using age-old stories to try and understand and process and think through these new technologies, and these new technologies in turn might have quite profound impacts on our storytelling. But what you're predicting there, Geraldine, is that that morals, that ethics, that creativity, ingenuity, and indeed human agency will remain as they are now, really central to our storytelling. So AI will have, and, and drone technology will have, implications but in some ways our storytelling over the ages our war storytelling over the ages has constantly wrestled with these same kinds of questions as newer technologies have emerged as new moral models have emerged as well and as our stories have not only reflected and adapted to that but then in turn helped to shape what follows and what becomes normal what gets canonized as the ethics of the future or indeed the practices and the tactics and the strategies of the future And in a sense, I know our conversation has been an awful lot about technology, but a a lot of it actually has really been about storytelling and about visualizing, about the trustful or mistrustful visualizing anticipation, the support for an investment in emerging military technologies. And indeed, your research as well, both of your research, which in quantitative and qualitative ways is expanding our understanding, deepening our AI literacy, deepening our drone literacy and really profound ways so that we can grapple with these developments that are happening at such a fast pace, but that are absolutely part of our future and really going to shape our future. So thank you both, Paul and Geraldine, for such a Mm. fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. We've got more episodes coming up over the winter as we continue to explore experiences of conflict and peace building in different periods and places. So please do keep tuning in. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use. And please leave us a rating if you can. It helps other people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening. 